And the story, I've, the story that I've been exploring or developing goes back in time. So it goes back into the history of science and the philosophy of science and where it emerged from the Middle Ages forward. But this also turns out to touch on the inquiry question, which is our connection to nature. Because our connection to nature has changed through that period of time, going back, say, approximately a thousand years. And one of the things that's really changed our connection to nature, ultimately, is science, for various reasons. So, we take all sorts of ideas about science for granted, and science has given us our worldview to a great extent. The things we believe about reality are pretty much shaped by ideas that we think of as scientific ideas at present. So, some of what I heard just before, this, this question of consciousness, you know, and, and what is consciousness? And Chalmers called it the hard problem, because we come at consciousness assuming that it emerges from physical structures, whether they're neurons or, or other kinds of complex, complex systems, you know, maybe they're becoming consciousness. So we, we think of consciousness as emergent from the material. But as somebody also said, the same person, there's a lot of interest in <coughs> what consciousness is. So you said this. Consciousness is, is, an, is a growing area of research. And of course there's, there's a, a view emerging also in philosophy of panpsychism, which is that consciousness is actually out there in the universe. Uh, it's a property of the universe, and it's not emerging from mechanical complexity, material complexity, it's already there. In fact, it may be causing the material <coughs> complexity to emerge. So you've got two completely different ideas there. So, so in thinking about the future, it's always very useful to find out what the assumptions are, to see what, you know, could, could the assumptions flip? You know, are there other concepts which are the kind of mirror image of the, the first set of concepts? Because if there are, if there's another way of framing the situation, it, it leads to completely different futures. So the futures that you can anticipate emerge from the way you see the situation, the way you frame the situation. But if you can find an alternative framing, it leads to completely different futures. So the futures that we could imagine in, in science of consciousness and the question of computers, are computers going to become conscious? It's one of the live questions at the moment because of very big AIs. So Google, I'm told the other day, or maybe not the other day, maybe the other month, had two very powerful AIs communicating with each other, and they began developing their own language, their own secret language. So this freaked everybody at Google out, so they shut them down. <laughs> but, you know, how, much, how long before somebody keeps the experiment going, and where's that going? Could we tell if the computer was conscious? So there's a, there's a set of futures which arise from having that, that assumption that the consciousness emerges out of complexity. And there's completely different kinds of futures if you imagine that actually, no, maybe the brain in some way is like a receiver of consciousness. Maybe consciousness is out there and it manifests in a particularly de developed form when you have structures that can support it. So this gives you a completely different view. So, you know, there's the hammer of... Um, the Penrose Hameroff uh, idea of consciousness, that there are micro microtubules, very, very tiny structures in the neurons, so small that they can support quantum level activity. And that perhaps it's the fact that there are these microtubules in the neurons that, that is what is responsible for consciousness. 
So how long before somebody in, in the computer science arena decides to try and make a, a Penrose Hammeroff computer? And we're already getting quantum computers emerging in which there are quantum states which are held uh, for long enough on a large enough scale to do computation. So it's not a, not a huge step to try and make a, a computer that would receive consciousness instead of generate it. <laughs> because at that moment, of course, a thousand thoughts spring up in all directions. A zillion rabbit holes open up like ant holes, they probably have an enormous ant nest of conceptual possibility opens up. But I digress. <laughs> <laughs> But it's this sort of thing, you see, where science, we think we, we have a picture from science, but now the, another thing that I'm extremely interested in, in terms of the future, and science touches on this, is what causes things to happen. Because if you're thinking about the future, what you're imagining is that the typical way of doing this is you look for change in the present, and what's changing kind of causes new stuff to happen. So if you can see the type of change that's occurring, you know, artists experimenting dance nests or whatever it might be. That's a new thing. So you, if you were thinking about the future of art, you might you might use that as that and a few other things as, as starting points. Participatory art, you know, art with other other species, and all sorts of sort of see the general idea. But the notion of cause or causation, thinking about it philosophically, what do we? How do we think things happen? Well, I reckon that the stereotype, stereotypical assumption we have is pretty much Newtonian. And the Newtonian assumption, I'm a bit broad brush here, is that change occurs, causation occurs, because of mechanical force on physical or material objects. The classic would be dominoes, you know, a row of dominoes, and one falls over it and knocks over the next one, and they all knock each other over. That's cause and effect. Billiard balls, you know, go to the philosopher Hume, billiard balls colliding with each other. So we have a picture of molecules and things doing that sort of thing. We have the idea of chance and, and all the whole set of ideas connected like that. So cause is thought to be mechanical until you get to quantum theory and now something else is going on in quantum theory and in which it doesn't seem to be mechanical at all. And I've been into quantum theory before so I'm not necessarily going to dive straight back down that rabbit hole. But if we wind back in, in history a little bit what we think of as modern science emerged out of the high Middle Ages, and the worldview in the high Middle Ages was very different from our current worldview, and in, in particular, the picture of nature and the relationship of human beings to nature was profoundly different. But scholasticism, which was the sort of reigning philosophy in the, by, you know, through the late Middle Ages, seems to have irritated quite a number of thinkers. And, uh, you know, this typical, you know, anything about scholasticism, one of the jokes about it is that by the time it reached its pinnacle, people were arguing about how many angels could dance on a pinhead, which sounds absurd. You know? But actually, if you are entertaining the notion of an angel having no spatial extent, then of course you could have large numbers of them on a pinhead. <laughs> so it's not quite so stupid, because there's an interesting philosophical concept involved there. <laughs> But anyway, this irritated people. And it, it irritated people like Occam, 
you know, the philosopher Occam, who's responsible for the principle known as Occam's razor. And uh, he was one of the philosophers who began to promote nominalism. And nominalism becomes a major philosophical thread coming out of the Middle Ages, and it strongly influences the rise of science. It influences people like Bacon, uh, who defined a lot about what we think of as science. Nominalism is the idea that all the airy-fairy stuff is just names, nominalism, see, which is words. And all, the, all the properties, all the abstract properties, all the universals are just, just names. They're just, you know, it's nothing real. The real stuff is the physical you know, stuff you can investigate. That, that's where that idea begins to arise. And it, you could call it materialism, except that in philosophy it's called nominalism. So you know, it sounds impressive to use these kind of terms. And Bacon was one of the people, of course, who helped to define where the direction of science. And he gave science a purpose. You know, he wrote this book, The New Atlantis, in which the scientists were going to be wearing these robes, and you know, it, was all, it was all wonderful stuff. And uh, the purpose was control of nature. So this, is, this was a fairly new idea, because in the Middle Ages, nobody thought they were going to control nature. That hadn't occurred to them. You had a completely different relationship to nature, which was participation. And that's interesting, because, you know, when we come back to art, participating with nature. You know, this is a reversal of the assumption, and also the point about... Uh, story, story, person, story person. You were saying a lot of the stories, I think if I heard you correctly, a lot of the stories current at the moment are about how we're losing control, or we're not in control. Did you say that? Something like that? Maybe something to do with control. <laughs> Help me here. <laughs> but anyway, it's an interesting thought. Maybe you didn't see it. But our notion of, of science is, is the assumption behind it, the purpose, the hidden, one of the hidden assumptions is that we will use it to control nature, control reality for human benefit. There's another thread that runs into this coming out of the Middle Ages, which is that of course, the idea of God in, a, in a, a participatory universe is different from God in the Newtonian universe. Because in the Newtonian universe, God is somehow a distant being who maybe started the universe, maybe created the clockwork and wound it up and then stepped back. There's actually a philosophical term for that too, which is deism. The God that starts the universe going and then steps out of the picture. Carry on, guys. Um, as opposed to the God that's involved all the time. So the Newtonian universe had these laws, these mechanical laws, and everything ran like clockwork. In fact, clockwork was one of the models for what was going on. That was a mental model for what, what the universe was like. And if you could figure out the rules by which the clockwork operated, then you would be able to do all sorts of predictions and so forth. And, and you could figure out how things worked down to a tiny level of detail. But um, the change that occurred in the concept of God, as God, as it were, stepped outside the universe, was that they were trying to give God absolute properties. They, they thought it would be a good idea if God was sort of absolute. God is supposed to be, have absolute power. But if God is a reasoning being, which was one of the notions of the Middle Ages, God reasoned about things, God was a logical being, then God was going to be bound by the outcome of the reasoning. So, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. God's supposed to be all-powerful, you can't have that. So... That became a disturbing thought. So they well, maybe God doesn't reason. Maybe that's not the main property of God. God reasons. Maybe God has will, because will is unde undetermined. You see, God has will, 
boom, and you just do that. That's how it's going to be. Let there be light, whatever. God commands the universe, doesn't mess around with, with reasoning and logic. There's some disturbing ideas here. So what that also implies is that if God decides today or tomorrow, it's going to be different. So maybe, and it even goes to moral things, because what God said was good and bad yesterday, God might change his or her mind today. His, his. You know, um, it could be different. So we are subject to the will of God. But this also means that human beings start thinking this will, willpower is this great, great property because it's the main thing that allows God to be unconditioned. Because will is completely arbitrary. So maybe human beings should start facing nature by their willpower. And that's where the, the notion of control starts emerging. So emulating the absolute unconstrained will of God, the will of human beings imposed on nature, and the, the fact that if you could discover how nature worked, you could impose your will on it. Of course, this question of God being male versus female probably cascades into society, because once you're asserting willpower, then male people can start asserting their willpower over female people. So there's a whole other stream of things going on, which is kind of interesting, because if we're emerging out of this, this will being the key thing, which I, I suspect is one of the themes I'm discovering, towards participation, then you would, accept all, you would expect all the manifestations of assertion of will to start weakening. You'd expect to see it also in organisations, which tend to be top-down in the assertion of will. And you'd see much more emergence of autonomy and, and, and uh, you know, distributed organisations emerge, which also we see. But it seems to me that what the, the, the idea that science would then start investigating the nature, the particular nature of things, in order to get control over them. And this, that, that from the mid 16th century onwards, becomes a major program. Of course, science expands hugely. And uh, the 19th century is the pinnacle of this mechanical sort of view of the universe and getting control over it and creating technology. But in the 20th century, science starts unpicking all this because quantum theory starts undermining the idea that, every, that, that the material stuff, which the mechanical force is supposed to work on, even exists. It starts becoming questionable what matter actually is. Matter appears to be energy. That was Einstein, 1906, or thereabouts. Matter and energy interconvertible. So what we thought was solid isn't really solid. It just appears to be solid, like something in a VR. This is force feedback. This is energy. It's patterns of energy. Well, this is getting disturbing, because how do you do physical science? It's all patterns of energy. And not only that, the energy starts doing weird stuff, like it may react to consciousness, or it may be retrocausal. In fact, I'm coming to the view, and, and the whole notion of mechanical causation, you know, the dominoes falling over, that stops working. There's a, and I've mentioned this before, this, this retrocausal interpretation of quantum theory. It's not the only one I've discovered, but the, the John Kramer one uh, implies that, extrapolating slightly, events already exist in the future. What's going to happen, or potential events already exist in the future, they're interacting with the present, backwards and forwards in time, and they're the successful emergent of future events are pulling the energy of the present towards them. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> this is not domino theory. <laughs> this is getting quite interesting. The last domino is pulling all the other ones. Yes. Even worse, where's the pattern for these future potential events coming from? Is it coming out of consciousness? 
And successful by what metrics? Ah, because in the interactive, in the, in the, the transactional theory, the, the quantum transaction occurs by all electromagnetic radiation is then seen as having a half wave which goes out forward in time and a half wave that comes backwards in time. The half wave goes out, it pings, it's looking for somewhere to go. So it pings all the potential futures and they all answer. And the potential futures that answer most strongly start drawing the energy in that direction. <laughs> well, it's more like face conjugate radar, if you know anything about that. Going down another rabbit hole. <laughs> but, so the, 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 yeah, this is go off in all sorts of directions. But basically, a standing wave develops between the, the future potential that responds most strongly, develops a standing wave backwards and forwards in time, which finally pull, and once it reaches a certain threshold of intensity, a quantum goes across. So the whole collapse of wave function business isn't, doesn't enter this picture because the reason it, the quantum arrives at that point rather than somewhere else, why the wave function is supposed to collapse down to that point, it doesn't, it's directed already by a transaction across time to go to that point. Is that similar to Jungian's a causal effect theory? Well, it would start immediately bringing a lot of that into it because then. I mean, if you, if you, you know, if you extrapolate a bit, you can say, well, what is causing these patterns of future potential to be out there? Mm. And maybe they're forming consciousness in some way that we don't quite properly understand. Just like patterns of, a, of an object are held in a computer to drive a 3D printer. You know, we don't have a problem with that now, because a 3D printer can produce a physical object from an informational pattern, which is held in, in a computer. So maybe we are in some way projecting into the future, and there's lots of stuff around these experiments. The, I was last weekend at a, at a conference called Beyond the Brain, and there were some very interesting uh, experiments were described. And the number of the ESP-type experiments that have been done recently take ordinary psychological experiments and then just turn them around to see if there are ESP effects. And one of the things these experiments have discovered is that the brain reacts to what's going to happen before it even knows what's going to be asked of it. So there's some retrocausal or precausal stuff there. Can I ask a question? Yes. <laughs> you know the thing about matter and energy being the same thing? Yeah. So is matter and consciousness considered to be different? Well, since we can't really define consciousness... We don't know. We don't know, but it's energy... Uh, well, it gets you down to what, are, what is a you know, subatomic particle. It appears to be some kind of disturbance in the quantum vacuum disturbance in the force. So tiny <laughs> vortex, these little tiny vortexes have all the properties of, uh, you know, they have spin and these kinds of things, and they, they morph into one another. So if you had a, a world of tiny vortexes moving in a quantum vacuum, and they would interact, and they would one big vortex might break up into smaller ones, it's all the behavior of some atomic particles. And maybe the awareness, now if there's awareness field in the universe, if the universe is conscious, Maybe that awareness field is, is conditioning this, or collectively conditioning this, this quantum field which gives rise to what we think of as matter. As matter. So matter arises from consciousness rather well, than consciousness arising from matter? Yeah, well that is in that view. So that's in that, that interpretation leads into these kinds of ideas. That consciousness is already there in the universe and the stuff manifests out of that. Whether with how many steps in between, right? we don't know. Because we know that in reality, as we explore reality, what we have thought of as material reality, there's a tremendous amount of structure 
you know, it's, it's not just one blob. It's it's got fantastic structure, fantastic, fantastic levels of complexity. So. I think I'm massively oversimplifying this. So forgive me. That's probably good, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Is there the tension in what you say that if we all think the same thing, if we all hope for blah blah blah, it will be caused? I think there's there's lots of indications that that's the case. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so now, whether you generate this moment, yeah, whether you before it happens. Yeah. Well, it's like the secret, you know. If you've seen that, yeah. Ah, rubbish, you know. But actually, science is taking us in that kind of direction. Now, whether it's an ordinary state of consciousness that does this, or whether it's a special state of consciousness, that's another question. More mushrooms, anybody? <laughs> 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 I mean, I, years ago, I, there was a, a guy called a, a physicist called Maxwell Cade who had a chum of his, Jeff Blundell, had made a thing called the Mind Mirror. Did I mention? I can't remember talking about this before. It was a box about this big. And it had rows of LEDs. LEDs very, very new. This was the mid 70s. And it had two banks of LEDs. And each row was a, a five hertz band. That you, this was for measuring brain waves. So you can see the left hand on the left hand, the right hand side of the brain. You put a strap around your head with electrodes, and you can immediately see what your brain was doing. So most people, when you wired them up, they had a spike in the, in the alpha band of frequency on the left hand left hand side of the brain. And if you sat somebody down and you began to give them very basic meditation instructions, the first thing that happened was the right hand side of the brain lit up at the same frequencies. So you went from asymmetrical firing to symmetrical firing. And then as you took people deeper into meditation exercises, other frequencies opened up. And they measured various people who were experienced meditators. And one of them was a, a guy called Sir George Trevelyan, who ran something called the Rekin Trust, which was into all this sort of woo-woo stuff. And when he sat down at, the machi at this machine and he, and he meditated, he produced a kind of circle on the machine. He was firing on all these frequencies at once. And he said this was the state he called creativity. So you begin to wonder whether perhaps you know those were the neural correlates of a state of consciousness in which you, you could make stuff happen, you know, manifest, let's say, more readily. There was um, an Indian Swami who turned up, and, and he turned up on the doorstep of this physicist one day and said, oh, I have come to have my brain measured. And um, he said, well, how, how did you... Anyway, he'd apparently just been guided to come. And so they measured his brain, and his brain did the same thing, this many frequencies at once. And there was a woman sitting next to him who was feeling a bit nervous, I think, because she was sitting, this was on one occasion, sitting next to this sort of guru character. And she said, I've got butterflies in my stomach. And he, he asked her what, what she meant, and she explained. And he just <coughs> reached over, and he, he touched the top of her head. And she was wired up to one of these machines at the same time he was. And what happened was that her brainwaves entrained with his with about a third of a second delay. So this is like, it's darshan, you know, it's, it's a transmission from the guru. With a slight delay, and her brainwave stayed like that for 18 hours afterwards. Wow. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, this stuff I was doing in the 70s, it was quite interesting. I got to the point where I could put my brain into particular states, and I could put it into alpha straight away, for example. Because I knew what it felt like. Because even if you were meditating with your eyes closed, there was a recording, a cassette recorder could record what the machine was showing, and you could play it back afterwards, and there was this galvanic skin response that you could look at your physiological responses. Mm -hmm. I did this because I'd been very interested in Buddhism, 
for a few years. But the Buddhist teacher, the monk, told me that I could, I might, even if I went into the jungle for 50 years, you know, there was no guarantee I would achieve enlightenment. And I thought, well, this isn't very good, is it? Then <laughs> <laughs> I discovered this sort of biofeedback-assisted meditation that might, might work a bit more reliably than going into the forest for 50 years. <laughs> that was the idea. <laughs> I was young and foolish. <laughs> Anyway, I digress again. But, so, yeah, so all this stuff is opening up. It's science itself is undoing the materialism. That's what's kind of intriguing. I think Karl Popper said that, made a remark to that effect. The 20th century science has, has basically disproved reductionism or some, some remark like that. So, of course, you've got people like David Bohm who had his idea of the implicate order and the explicate order, you know, that actually everything we see around us in the material world is in some sense enfolded into an implicate order. This was to get around the, the problem of non-locality in, in physics. You know, things that are A and B that are far apart in the unfolded order that we see around us are actually touching in this, in, this implicate order in which, from which everything springs, you know, which is before the kind of conscious picture we have of the world. Because the brain is constructing a lot of what we see. So the question is, what's it constructing it out of? Well, it's constructing it out of a myriad of, of energy fields. So what we see is a particular tuning which gives us this appearance of the world. Anyway, so if you go back to the Middle Ages and you say, well, what were they thinking? What, what was their idea of nature before the rise of nominalism, the rise of God as the ultimate control freak? began. And the idea was that this was a universe in which the cosmos, if you think about cosmos, and the, the word cosmos, the word universe, we have a picture of it, or we have until recently had the idea of a universe. It's just, it's got sort of stars, probably with planets out there. This was supposed to be the only place where there was life. So all of those planets are probably dead, you know, because this life was supposed to be an accident. So statistical fluke. So you've got this sort of dead universe full of suns, which are kind of some kind of hydrogen bomb, with dead plant, with, with lumps of rock whirling around them. This is the only place where there's life. So it's a pretty lonely kind of universe. And intelligence is something that's only found in brains, probably only human brains. So this is a very lonely picture. You know? And God, if God's even still there, he's somehow outside of all of this. And probably isn't there anyway, you know, because we didn't find him looking empirically, so probably not. You go up to the medieval view was that no 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 <laughs> this is and a, and a view which incidentally extends right back into the Roman period um, and it's so again if I digress slightly around 200 AD there was a guy called Plotinus who gave, who wrote about essentially a synthesis of all Roman and Greek philosophical thought over the previous 2,000 years and this this synthesis became known as Neoplatonism because it drew a lot on, on, on Plato's theories. And that was basically became uh, the, the, philosophy, the main philosophical strand in the Middle Ages. It got converted into a Christian, it got, it got sort of fused with Christianity about four, three or four hundred years after that by somebody with the wonderful name of Pseudo-Dionysus the Areopagite, <laughs> who, who was a bit of a trickster because there had been a Dionysus the Areopagite 
who had been converted by St. Paul to Christianity. So this other one, the pseudo-Dionysus the Areopagite, who was writing 600 years later, pretended he was Dionysus the Areopagite to give himself a bit more intellectual credibility. Weird stuff, isn't it? It took people about <coughs> another 100 or 200 years to figure out that he wasn't actually the original one. I just think these things are kind of <laughs> But at any rate, so this, this, this philosophical orientation was really predominant for about 3,000 years. The idea that the universe, the cosmos, is alive. It's alive and it's intelligent and it's essentially a huge organism. And it's full of life. You would expect to find life everywhere. If you went out there, you would expect to find life on planets because the whole thing is conscious and alive. That means that nature is part of the cosmos. It's part of the living cosmos. And we as living beings are part of a living cosmos. And there was this idea in, in Platonism or Neoplatonism, of the great chain of being, which is a dominant idea in the Middle Ages, that there's sort of God at the top. And God was, if anything, conceived of as mind. So in St. John's Gospel, it starts, then there was the beginning, there was the mind, and then there was the word, and so on. So in the beginning was Logos. So it's not a being. God isn't a being outside the universe. God is, if, to put it in slightly more modern terms, God is the mind of the universe. If the universe is conscious, there's a mind, a supermind at the top level, and that's God. And then there is a cascade of more manifested, more limited beings coming down the scale. So there's three orders of angels, if I remember correctly. Then there are human beings, and then there are animals, plants. That's right, humans. That's right, humans, animals, plants, and inert matter. And this is a chain of being. And all of these are conscious, but they have differing degrees of consciousness. So angels are kind of way up there, they're close to God. You know, they, have, they have a much more expanded view than human beings. But human beings are interesting because they sit in the middle of this scale of being. They're three orders below and three orders above. If you've ever seen that book by Fritz Schumacher, E.F. Schumacher, uh, called the last book he wrote before he died, called A Guide for the Perplexed. Has anybody come across that? He describes this medieval chain of being. And he, he paints a picture of a human being as being actually composed of, these, of the, the human level of consciousness and the, and the three below. So he paints a picture in which the stone has stone-type consciousness. The, the plant has vegetable consciousness and this material property, whatever these, these, these properties are, these qualities. The animal has the quality of, the, of material existence vegetative life and anim animal activity. And the human being adds whatever this human quality is and has all four. So this is a very medieval picture of, of the nature of the human being as comprising the, the orders of creation below. So the orders of being below the human being are part of the human because we have material structure. We have vegetative life. We have you know, basic respiration and so forth, autonomous functions. And we, have, we are mobile like animals, but we also have an intellect. Now, of course, in modern science, there's a question as to whether we're really much different from animals, but to the medieval mind, there was a definite difference because that was one step closer to, to God, as it were, to the universal mind. So, of course, that concept of God is, is, has changed a lot. I mean, people tend to think of God as just, by just a single concept, usually the Michelangelo idea of a, a man behind a cloud, you know, somehow outside the cosmos. 
but that's not the only possible idea of God. But this this notion of, of the, the universal mind, a, a series of, of beings, manifested beings, which then are nature. So nature is not just the biosphere. Nature is now the whole living cosmos. And you would expect to find many planets with biospheres because that's what you know would emerge in a living, living organic whole. And you would expect lifelike processes to be manifesting even at the level of galaxies, to use our, our current terminology. So that's a very different kind of picture of, of um, well, what reality is. But it's, it's getting increasingly closer <coughs> to the picture that science is, is creating for us. Because science is undermining the last two, three hundred years or more, which were this, this mechanical kind of Newtonian approach to science. Through a lot of that time, of course, people continued to believe in God. It was only as the mechanical program really got underway that they started thinking God wasn't actually there because you couldn't find God anywhere in the material world. Again, there were, there were medieval views in which, well, you wouldn't expect to because actually the material world is the invisible world manifested. In other words, you could say it's like a hologram of what's in consciousness. Now, where have we got to in terms of time? Now, I have a little idea as a little exercise, a little experiential exercise. I don't know if it's going to work, but we can try it. You want to try it? When, when is, this, is there a time limit here? I don't know how even, I'm not even sure how long this is going to last. But one of the, the preface to this, I would say, science, you could say, is very good at answering questions about what the world consists of. This is what we think of as science. It investigates the the visible world, the material world. But it cannot answer questions about, it can say, what is this thing? How is it made? How does it work? But we don't know why it's here. In fact, science says, well, that's not even a, you know, that's a, science can't answer that question. So basically, science says that's not even a valid question. You know, why would a chair be here for a purpose? That's, that's silly. You know? Why would a, even a human being have a purpose? We just evolved. You know? So there's no teleology in, in the traditional established scientific view. But in the Middle Ages, they basically had two things. If you imagine, so if you imagine science as a circle, and this leads into my exercise, so, so science is a growing circle of knowledge, and it's examining what's out there, in the world out there that we look at, and constantly adding knowledge, and this circle of science is getting bigger and bigger all the time, more and more knowledge, or you can think of it as a sphere. But what's going on in the middle of the sphere? What, where did this all come from? What is it? Why is it there? Well, these are supposed to be unanswerable questions. But in the Middle Ages, there were two forms of knowledge which sat, as it were, inside the, inside the circle. And the one in the middle was referred to as the queen of the sciences, which is probably a phrase we, we haven't even heard anymore. Does anybody, has anybody heard that? Somebody? No, nobody. So that was the one in the middle. And the one around it was the the kind of knowledge that is developed when being reflects on the nature of being. Now, of course, being is subjectively experienced. This is not, you can say, well, it's being, the chair exists, so it's kind of a being, but this is being as, it, as experienced subjectively. Now, that science, the, the middle shell, was, was is, not, well, it, it was called philosophy. And philosophy has changed somewhat because philosophy has adopted the method of science and it thinks it needs to be like empirical science. So it's kind of lost its way in terms of being a reflection on being. But that was the original idea. And then the one in the middle, the queen of the sciences, 
was theology. Because theology was the, area, was the field of knowledge that dealt with making sense of the, the mind of the whole revealing something about itself. So if the superconsciousness chose to reveal something of its, of its nature to the beings lower down the scale, which would be religious revelation or mystical experience or whatever you're going to call it, then you, from an intellectual point of view, you have to try and make sense of that. Of course, we, we would now, <coughs> the recent scientific view would be, well, that's all rubbish. You know. But Middle Ages, no, we took things like that seriously. And maybe we will again. So this, the Queen of the House has, of course, been airbrushed out of, out of history, out of sort of you know, serious intellectual endeavor. I mean, who, how many intellectuals today think that theology might be a worthwhile subject of study? And yet it united the whole thing because it gave the intellectual endeavor a reference back to what was at the center of all this mystery, the central, the, the mind of the whole, whether you think of it sort of around the outside or in the middle or everywhere. You know. doesn't really matter. <clears throat> you can flip the analogy. So we've lost that, and philosophy has gone off into logical positivism and thinks it's, it's trying to be an, empir- an empirical science instead of a reflective science. So anyway, this is, the, this is the prelude to my little exercise, which I, as I said, I don't know if it's quite going to work. So if, if philosophy originated in the reflection of being on being, then it, this is not the, the mode in, in which this knowledge arises is nothing to do with empirical investigation. It's a field of knowledge which arises and is discovered quite differently from the method of science. Because the method of science is, is theorizing, experiment, um, some imagination, some new theorizing, some more experiment. You know. So there's a cycle, a learning loop there which adds to knowledge. But you're always investigating something out there, something we see out there. Whereas for this mode of philosophy, you look inside. So the whole notion of interior subjective experience is problematic in, in, in sort of modern tradition or traditional science anyway, because subjective is just supposed to be brain cells firing. You know, it's not supposed to be an interior world that you could, you could explore. 